1: This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: I feel the poem having a certain willfulness uh, The poem might take on a kind of whimsicality about where it's going. So the poem might want to go in a direction that you hadn't anticipated. And that really is the, the beginning of the real fun of poetry, is when the poem is shifting and in, in, uh, a little out of your control. Uh, it develops an intelligence um, along the way, sometimes, if you're lucky, if, it, if not, it just ends up in the wastebasket.
1: That's my friend Billy Collins, the poet. I love his poetry, and so do millions of other people. He was the U.S. Poet Laureate from 2001 to 2003. His poems are full of surprises, often making you trip over your expectations. Sometimes finding yourself thinking more deeply than you thought you would, and sometimes just laughing out loud. I wanted to know how he does it. This is really going to be fun for me because we've had a lot of different kinds of communication represented on the show. But we've never talked about poetry. And as far as I'm concerned, you're the guy to talk about poetry with. I'm your man. I'd like to know how you answer a stupidly basic question. What makes a poem a poem?
2: Well, um, the only surefire definition of a poem I've heard is by Henry Taylor, and he said, a, a poem is an arrangement of lines whose length is determined by some principle other than the width of the page. In other words, the lines don't go out to the end of the page. <laughs> That's how most people recognize, visually at least, that a poem is a poem. Uh, there are other def- many other definitions, <laughs> but that one you, you can't take apart. I know um, Christopher Ricks said that... Um, in prose, you would have the phrase, uh, the silence of the green fields, right? In poetry, mm. you could have the phrase, the green silence of the fields. Ah. So that in poetry, silence can have colors. So there's a more of an imaginative freedom in poetry. And one more from Kenneth Koch, who... Uh, he also gave prose and poetry as a contrasting example. So he said, uh, "Prose would be no dogs allowed on the beach. Poetry would be no dogs or logs allowed on the beach, no poodle, however trim, no dachshund unable to swim." And <laughs> in, in, in that, you see that the words are enjoying the the company of each other through rhyme and humor, um, and and and. I think that's another definition of poetry. The words are happy to be in each other's company in a way that they don't have to be in prose.
1: Yeah, you often talk about words in poems as if they have consciousness. The poem starts to want to talk about this. The words like to be together. How does does that actually work in your brain? Do you actually experience the poem talking to you in some funny way, or are you being poetic when you say that?
2: Now, I feel the poem having a, a certain willfulness or a certain, uh, the poem might take on a kind of whimsicality about where it's going. I would say it's a little like, you know, holding the, I forget what it's called, the placket or something in, the, in a Ouija board. Mm-hmm. So you're holding it very lightly. And I told uh, younger students to hold the pen lightly in a way because the, the poem might be developing a sense of itself that you're not fully aware of. So the poem might want to go in a direction that you hadn't anticipated, and that really is the the beginning of the real fun of poetry, is when the poem is shifting, in, in uh, a little out of your control, and it has a, a way of, uh, it, it has an it develops an interest in itself that you're not even aware of, and you know a lot of um, novelists or playwrights often make this claim that I don't entirely believe, and that is that. You know, after the second chapter, the characters really took over and I just kind of listened to the characters. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. But a, a poem is not a character, but it does have a consciousness. Uh it develops an intelligence, um along the way. Sometimes, if you're lucky if it if not, it just ends up in the wastebasket. <laughs> you
1: know? You're leaving the door open to your unconscious.
2: Well, yeah, I think um I think that's at play. Um I I don't I've never written poems about, I, about my dreams but I like to write in the morning when I'm closer to that state uh-huh. I find the the mind is a kind of blank slate at that at that part of the day but I think there's a negotiation that goes on between the poem and the and the and the poet And especially if you're writing a formal poem. Now, my poems aren't that formal, but they have certain. I have certain. I've made certain formal decisions about the poem. One would be if maybe it comes in four-line stanzas. Let's say I've Uh made that provisional decision. So now I've got to write clear sentences because I use the sentence. (laughs) God help me, and um, I want to. I want to make strong lines because a poem comes in lines. It occurs in lines. Information is paid out line by line, and now I've got to make four-line stanzas, so I have kind of triple things going on, and I want to make sense if you want to add a fourth one, and um, often the poem will push back at you and tell you, well, you've this line's too long, or you need to finish the stanza before you did. At that point, some of the rules can be thrown out if the poem is willful enough. A really good example is haiku, which just has to be 17 syllables, usually five, seven, five. And if you don't, if you have six syllables, you'll feel this pushback from the haiku. Mm. The haiku has really no interest, and in, it's, it's been around longer than you have, and <laughs> will, will be there long after you've gone. And so it just tells you, it's 575, Charlie. You know, I just <laughs> use, use words like that. But but then you've got this pushback from the forum, and you, you can't just go anywhere. And then this negotiation begins between you and the and the form, or you and the poem. And in informal poetry, I think there's a that takes place at a more subtle level, perhaps. Um, this little conversation that you're having with the poem, and it means really respecting the poem as a, a growing, sort of maybe organic, even organic thing, instead of just being willful and starting out to say something and saying it. If you know exactly what you're going to say before you write the poem, you'd really be better off writing a, an opinion piece for the local newspaper.
1: It sounds like you're talking about the difference between discovery and invention, in a way, or, or making something, of, of building an object, to where you know in advance what you're going to wind up with compared with finding out as you go along.
2: Yeah, I think that's very important. Uh, You might say the difference between discovery and reporting, Uh, um, uh, just knowing what you're going to report and reporting it. Uh, I like to start out. Uh, one poet, William Matthews, said it's good to maintain the benefits of your ignorance for as long as possible <laughs> about knowing where you're going, and then it makes the it makes the makes the writing of the poem much more interesting because the ending of the poem, particularly, is is the big discovery. You know, it's sort of what the poem is is leading to, but there are many discoveries that happen along the way. Um, many people have compared this to driving at night, where you have, you know, headlights that can show you a little bit of the way, enough to keep um, keep moving, but you can't see all the way to the end of the road.
1: How do you react to the unusual turn it might take?
2: Uh, well, with, with uh, gratitude, probably, and uh, in, in that, um, the poem is uh, surprising me. Uh, you know, it's 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 pretty. Diff- it's hard to surprise yourself. You can't, you know, put your eye, uh, your hands over your eyes and say, guess who? <clears throat> you pretty much know who it is. Uh, you can't fool yourself that way. I,
1: I studied with a mime teacher who said you can't hold a f- make-believe pistol to your head and be frightened by it.
2: All right, that's good. It might apply as an analogy to improvisation, to mm-hmm. improv, you know, theatrical improv, yeah. where... Which I have no experience in, but I have
1: a lot, and I know—I think I know exactly what you mean, because the essence of that is to let it happen and not to direct it.
2: Right, you can't dead end the thing. Yeah. By saying, by by saying no, would you like some cup, another cup of coffee? You can't just say no. (laughs) That's the (laughs) end of it. Well, would you like some pie with that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Then get out of here. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> no. So uh, yeah, so you're you're. I mean, it's impro- improvised because you're making it up as you go along, but also th- you let let the poem have its uh, let the poem have a say in it.
1: There's something about your poetry that is, I think, remarked on by everybody, and you may be sick of hearing about it, which I guess you could say is accessibility. But it—it's—I understand your. I don't mean to insult you, but I feel I understand your poems.
2: <laughs> well, a lot of poets would be uh, insulted by that. But. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Why?
1: Why have poets chosen inscrutability in some cases, or at least inscrutable to me? They have my number and they know they're—they're they're not going to work. With me.
2: <laughs> what's What's all that about? I don't know it's a big question. I mean I think they're a legitimate, you know, the the high modernists of the last century like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and uh, Wallace Stevens, Hart Crane. These are very difficult poets, but I think they're you can understand their difficulty partially at least in if you look at what they're moving away from. So they're moving away from ornate Victorian poetry, mm. overly decorated. I mean if you have a situation at the early part of that century of Of the First World War and um, industrialization, all sorts of big changes in society. And because of all this dislocation, I think um, that's one cultural reason or social reason for poems being uh, not as, uh, they're not standing on as uh, a firmer ground. Um, I don't know how it's justified today. I I don't, it doesn't bother me because I don't read it. Um, if a poem doesn't show some interest in me, or sh- show um, act as if it's, it does have a reader, in, rather than just being an act of typewriting of, of some kind, um, I just don't bother to read it anymore. I mean, when I was in high school, when I started writing poetry, I didn't understand it either, but I, I really was in, enjoyed the suddenness of it and the fact that it just took place on one page. And also, I could see that when certain words were put together, they kind of gave off sparks, and I don't—I didn't know what was going on exactly, but I—I I I had a sense of um, la- the excitement of, of, of language. But I knew two things about poetry: the poetry I was reading, and that is, um, it was—it was difficult to understand. Um, but the poet was miserable. <laughs> and uh and so, so you just I, left
1: him in his misery
2: <laughs> so when i was in high school i was actually a pretty happy happy kid and uh but i wrote poems that were uh, that were uh pretended to be mis- in which i pretended to be as miserable as possible but um, but I discovered later, through the through reading other poets, uh, that clarity was really an option in, in poetry. And just because a poem is clear, doesn't mean that it has, that it doesn't have uh, some mysteriousness about it. Or it, it also doesn't mean just because a poem is funny that it does that it's not touching on a uh, a serious uh, human subject.
1: What is the role of funny in a poem for, for you?
2: Well, you know, I, I think it's my father, you know, <laughs> getting back to, the, I mean, my father was a very funny guy. He was, very, he, was a, he was a wisecracker and lots of lines and lots of jokes and um, often wisecracking at a level of cruelty that was quite noticeable, especially behind the wheel. This really brought out uh, his wisecracking. Uh, very few motorists in his vicinity <laughs> got away without some kind of <laughs> disparaging comment, and um, and he was also a practical joker. And um, I'll tell you, if if we have time here,
1: yeah, well, I'd like to his, hear his
2: his famous practical joke. Well, he worked uh, downtown in Wall Street. He he was in a big insurance company that took insurance business uh, and took it over to Lloyd's of London kind of thing. Um, but he, there was one guy he didn't like in the office, probably several of them, but he picked out this one guy. And, um, of course, everyone wore hats back the, then, uh, as you remember, you know. And, yeah. It was back in the in the 1950s. So one day, uh, he went into the cloakroom and he, he took out this guy's, snuck this guy's hat out of the cloakroom, and he took it down to the store and he bought two identical hats, one an eighth of a size bigger and one an eighth of a size smaller. <laughs> and then he began to, sh- to switch the hats so that one day the hat would be, It's five o'clock, the hat would be down on the guy's ears a little bit. And then the next day it would be up on his head. And then <laughs> this went on for over a month. And... um <laughs> So this is the kind of uh, cruel humor I uh, was brought up with and uh, he never never told the guy but um oh, did he visit so him I, in the hospital I, uh, all right <laughs> um i don't know the role of the role of humor is i mean it, it's it's one way to disarm the reader if you if you cause an involuntary reaction which is laughter or amusement mm. um it, uh, I, I'm not thinking in this kind of calculating way as I write, but it does have the effect of softening up the reader or making the reader a little more pliable uh, later on in the poem when the poem might get more serious.
1: When we come back from our break, Billy Collins reads several of his wonderful poems, including a favorite of mine, a poem by a dog with a bone to pick with its former owner. This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Covley Prize. Welding instructor Alex
0: DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends.
1: This is clear and vivid, and now back to my conversation with the poet Billy Collins. You pay real attention to the reader. I I gather, it's you don't you don't let the reader sink or swim. You you're with them, thinking along with them as the poem occurs to you. I, I get that impression anyway.
2: Well, I want the I want the company of the reader. I mean, writing poetry is lonely enough, but uh, to be it's solitary enough. Uh, Without a reader, so I like to to put the reader kind of in the sidecar and make sure the reader is with me. And I do that by checking my sentences, like going back and um, at a very regular intervals and reading what I just wrote as if I wasn't me. Now that's something that um, younger writers have a problem with because their poetry is overly ego-driven, so they can't. stop the, the running of the ego. But if you think of a reader, um, it's an act of courtesy to stop every once in a while, as you would in conversation, and uh, see if the reader is still with you.
1: I think your ability to pay attention to the reader and to allow your, allow your poem to woo them a little bit with humor is so clear in your reading to an audience, especially for me the poem called The Revenant where a dog <laughs> comes back from the dead and talks to his owner. I just love the experience of hearing you communicate with a live audience. Can I, do you mind if I play a recording of that now?
2: I am the dog you put to sleep as you like to call the needle of oblivion come back to tell you this simple thing, I never liked you <laughs> when I licked your face I thought of biting off your nose. When I watched you toweling yourself dry, I wanted to leap and unman you with a snap. I resented the way you moved, your lack of animal grace, the way you would sit in a chair to eat, a napkin in your lap, a knife in your hand. I would have run away, but I was too weak. A trick you taught me while I was learning to sit and heal, and greatest of insults, shake hands without a hand (laughs) I admit the sight of the leash would excite me but only because it meant I was about to smell things you had never touched (laughs) you do not want to believe this but I have no reason to lie I hated the car hated the rubber toys disliked your friends and worse your relatives the jingling of my tags drove me mad you always scratched me in the wrong place. <laughs> all I ever wanted from you was water and food in my, my metal bowls. While you slept, I watched you breathe as the moon rose in the sky. It took all of my strength not to raise my head and howl. Now I am free of the collar, free of the yellow raincoat, monogram sweater, the absurdity of your lawn. And that is all you need to know about this place except what you're already supposed and are glad it did not happen sooner that everyone here can read and write (laughs) the dogs in poetry, the cats and all the others in prose.
1: You know, when I heard that, I of course laughed. But... There was this painful feeling of empathy for the dog. I could feel the dog from the dog's point of view. It was a wonderful combination, and the wonderful turn the, the the poem takes at the end.
2: Well, that was a very responsive audience. I'll tell if I have like an audience like that every time they were laughing at every after every stanza.
1: Isn't it a wonderful feeling when that you can share your sense of humor with well, people who you get it? Well, know.
2: <laughs> I think it's it's addictive. It's someone um, this, this editor, uh, Don and poet Don Patterson, <clears throat> said that you don't want um, become too addicted to that because you'll you'll become an applause monkey <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because it does have an addictive quality. But yeah, I hope. Um, I mean, as you say, there's some poignancy in there. Uh, you feel you feel a little sympathy for the dog because the dog seems even more isolated than than we think of another species being. Um, one of my favorite my favorite line in there. We're going to talk about my favorites is uh, the absurdity of your lawn. I just think I could picture the dog watching this guy mowing his lawn and weeding and stuff, and just <laughs> thinking of it as a place to uh, you know, go to the bathroom. Maybe I don't know, but.
1: I, 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 it made me stop and think. I kept seeing the lawn, and yeah. I kept thinking, "What does the dog hate about uh-huh. the lawn?" And I started to hate the lawn along with yeah. the dog. <laughs> I've,
2: had, I've, had, I've had to reassure some of these, some readers, that the, their their dog obviously loves them, but
1: <laughs> they, they worry after hearing that. So, I'd like to hear
2: some more. Well, um, let me read a poem um, from. Uh, my latest book is called Whale Day. And so here's another poem about a dog to make a little transition here. It's called, uh, the title is Walking My 75-Year-Old Dog. She's painfully slow, so I often have to stop and wait while she examines some roadside weeds as if she were reading the biography of a famous dog. And she's not a pretty sight anymore, dragging one of her hind legs, her coat too matted to brush or comb, and a snout, white as a marshmallow. We usually walk down a disused road that runs along the edge of a lake, whose surface trembles in a high wind and is slow to ice over as the months grow cold. We don't walk very far before she sits down on her worn haunches and looks up at me with her roomy eyes, then it's time to carry her back to the car. Just thinking about the honesty in her eyes, I realize I should tell you, she's not really 75, she's 14. I guess I was trying to appeal to your sense of the bizarre, the curiosities of the sideshow. I mean, who really cares about another person's dog? Everything else I've said is true except the part about her being 14. I mean, she's old, but not that old. And it's not polite to divulge the true age of a lady. So it's very, it's a very sentimental subject, this, you know, having a, an elderly dog. But I try to lighten it up with the, with the title that the dog is 75 years old. <laughs> and then that you're... Um, is it, I'm really playing with the um, the re, the unreliability of the narrator. You know, he, he says, "I, you know, I I just said that to get your attention." And she's really 14. I'm being honest with you now. And then at the end, he says, "I can't tell you how old she is because it's not nice." <laughs> I'm laughing at my own stuff, which is not a good thing. Uh,
1: you had me again with, the, with when you picked up the dog and you referred to the eyes. I was in contact in that moment with the dog's eyes, good, which, uh, good. which releases the the love hormone.
2: Um, I can read another poem that's not about a dog. This one is in, also in the same book, Whale Day, and it's a it's a it, it, this is interesting because to me at least, I started out um, in the in the middle of the poem. Um, the poem wanted to be a sonnet. Don't ask me why, but the poem was giving off sonnet-like uh, wishes and urges. So I said to the poem, well, I'm not going to go back and rewrite the whole thing, but I'll, from this point on, I will make it sonnet, as sonnet-like as possible. And it's called Sleeping on My Side. Every night, no matter where I am, when I lie down, I turn my back on half the world. At home, it's the east I ignore, with its theaters and silverware, as I face the adventurous west. But when I'm out on the road, in some hotel's room, 213 or 402, I could be pointed anywhere. Yet I hardly care, as long as you are there, facing the other way. So we are defended in all degrees, and my left ear is pressing down as if listening for hoofbeats in the ground.
1: How did you know that it wanted to be a sonnet? And how did you respond to that?
2: Um, well, it beca- I think it was because it became a love poem, I think. At that line, I could be pointed anywhere, but yet I hardly care as long as you are there. And so the fact that the, uh, the beloved is... Uh, or the bedmate is, is introduced here. I thought that, and I, I tried to, I mean, I ended it with a, a kind of closing couplet. And my left ear is pressing down as if listening for hoofbeats in the ground. And that kind of closed it off there. I guess that was the, the thing. I really wrote this because I'd read two poems by Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, one of them was called Sleeping on the Ceiling, and the other one was called Sleeping Standing Up. And I thought I would add a note of realism. Um, just sleeping on my side. <laughs> That's how it got started. A lot of, quite a few poems of mine um, have their beginnings in other, other poems. Um,
1: what about endings? You have some very interesting thoughts, I think, on how a poem should end.
2: For me, I always think the poem is going somewhere. I think it's traveling somewhere. I think it's, it's making progress. In other words, it's not just um, kind of watercolors, you know. And the ending is a, some kind of a rival point. It, it's a point where I want to give the impression that I don't have anything more to say, and I want to make the reader feel that uh, the reader doesn't need it d- anymore. You know, it's just it's just enough. Um, it's just, yeah, I suppose the, the ending where the dog um, becomes a literary dog Everyone here can read and write. Well, that opens a whole other thing. As the poem is about to end, and then the close, the closer is dogs writing poetry. Everybody else, from you know cats to rhinoceri or whatever, right? They write in prose. So the the dog suddenly becomes um, claims some a high cultural ground by, by being a poet. I can give you an example of a. A, a poem in which someone, a person really rides to the rescue at the end becomes the ending of the poem. And um, I don't know how else I would have ended it, but um, it's, it, it, the poem is called The Trouble with Poetry. The trouble with poetry, I realized as I walked along a beach one night, cold Florida sand under my bare feet, a show of stars in the sky, The trouble with poetry is that it encourages the writing of more poetry, more guppies crowding the fish tank, more baby rabbits hopping out of their mothers into the dewy grass. And how will it ever end, unless the day finally arrives when we have compared everything in the world to everything else in the world, and there is nothing left to do then but quietly close our notebooks and sit with our hands folded on our desks. Poetry fills me with joy, and I rise like a feather in the wind. Poetry fills me with sorrow, and I sink like a chain flung from a bridge. But mostly, poetry fills me with the urge to write poetry, to sit in the dark and wait for a little flame to appear at the tip of my pencil. And along with that, the longing to steal, to break into the poems of others with a flashlight and a ski mask. And what an unmerry band of thieves we are, cut purses, common shoplifters. I thought to myself as a cold wave swirled around my feet and the lighthouse moved its megaphone over the sea, which is an image I stole directly from Lawrence Ferlinghetti, to be perfectly honest for a moment, the bicycling poet of San Francisco, who is little amusement park of a book I used to carry in a side pocket of my uniform up and down the treacherous halls of high school.
1: That's a beautiful poem. I love that poem. and It inspires me to write more. What other thoughts do you have on ending a poem? What's the opportunity there at the end?
2: The last and grandest opportunity because it's an opportunity to arrive at a place that you hadn't thought of when you started out with a kind of flashlight. And um, it goes back to the sense of the poem being an act of exploration rather than an act of reporting. So it's, uh, in other words, a process that uses the imagination more than just the memory, you're not re- you're not re- recording a previous event. You're creating a new event, kind of in the present tense of its own composition. And in that case, uh, the last poem we heard was um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti uh, just came up. I mean, I had I thought that was a beautiful image: the lighthouse moving its megaphone, combining sound and light. And I had jotted that down somewhere, and then I thought, I'll just use that. And then I was talking about imitating and stealing, and then I'll admit to it. And then I'll just give Lawrence Ferlinghetti the last few lines. And then suddenly it goes back to the beginning of my reading poetry, the beat poetry of the 50s, when I was in high school. Well,
1: unfortunately, this, this is the ending of our conversation for now. But we always end our our shows, our conversations with seven quick questions that has something vaguely to do with conversation. Are you game?
2: Sure. It reminds me of high school, but I'm game.
1: What do you wish you really understood?
2: Oh, um, I'd like to understand how, uh, how animals think. Probably never achieved that, but just what goes on in the mind of a cat, especially.
1: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
2: Um, I would uh, 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 circumlocute that. I mean, bring up something else. And um, I would, there's a, uh, a good phrase here. Have you ever considered, and then say uh, the opposite. Have you considered, instead of saying you're wrong. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, when I was Poet Laureate, I was at a high school, and uh, it was a bad time. The war in Iraq was starting and all that stuff. And a a boy, about 14 years old, said, uh, you're the Poet Laureate, right? And I said, what's your question? He said, how many people would have to die before you became president? (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I had to explain that I wasn't in the the, uh, line of succession. (laughs) Then I thought, wait a minute. I said, probably, I don't know, 240? (laughs) You never know. Congress. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How do you stop
1: a compulsive talker?
2: Oh, well that, that by shutting up because that's me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's say you're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person?
2: I usually say what did you what have you what did you do all day?
1: Oh, what did you do all day? What did you oh, do today.
2: Any highlights yeah. or and and that leads into basically what kind of job they have and all sorts of things but it's a very innocent question what gives you confidence um i don't know i have i think my parents gave me co- the confidence to think i'm the only person in the world <laughs> i still kind of <laughs> secretly believe that
1: <laughs> okay last question
2: what book changed your life um I think uh, to go way, way back, the Yearling by by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings uh, the, about the boy and the deer. It was the first time I had a, a kind of a more ad- adult emotion than you'd get out of um, a children's book like Mister Stinky Pants or Goodnight Moon or something.
1: You mean Mister Stinky Pants didn't launch your career? <laughs>
2: Actually, I don't think that series began when I was a child. It was more like Runaway Bunny and stuff like that.
1: Well, this has been a lovely time to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time to do this.
2: I did too, Alan. I enjoyed it, and thank you for having me on your terrific uh, broadcast here.
1: This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so my thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Billy Collins was the Poet Laureate of the United States from 2001 to 2003. Over the last half century, he's published some 17 books of poetry, including his most recent, Whale Day. He teaches in the MFA program at Stony Brook University and his website is billycollinspoetry.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Shemay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohene and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Hope Jaron in a return visit. A couple of years back, we talked about her best-selling memoir, Lab Girl, Since then, her writing has been focused on how our generation has benefited from a huge increase in consumption of food and fuel and stuff at the expense of future generations' ability to cope with the consequences. Her new book is The Story of More.
0: If I have a student or a friend or someone in a cafe say, I'm afraid of climate change, I don't know what's going to happen. I have to be honest and say I'm a scientist who's worked on this for decades and I don't know what's going to happen either. Here are the things that I'm worried about. And try to pass on information with humility and with honesty and trust that the person you're talking to knows best how to use that information in their own lives.
1: Hope Jaron, hoping that knowledge will overcome fear for future generations having to deal with our generation's consumption. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
0: You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Ah! Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Ah! Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love.